So, uh, so it's been it's been a it's been a heavy week, y'all. So, so I think it's important. I think it's important to just kind of lay lay all of my cards on the on the table. Uh, a friend of mine said on 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 Friday, he was like, "If your church if your church didn't want a radical, they shouldn't have put you up there." Um, over the over this past week, we we we've seen gun violence on a mass scale against black, brown, and Asian image bearers, particularly. And that's just this week, and that's just in this country. It doesn't say anything about what's going on, uh, basically genocide in Ethiopia, the, 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 the fact that Ukraine is getting, essentially, uh, I mean, reports are saying that, that, that Russia is dropping white, white phosphorus on folks. Um, there are things going on around the world that if, if we thought about all of it, we would fall into despair. And so, and so I think it's important when we, when, we have, when we have weeks like this, weeks that we will probably see more of in the future rather than, rather than fewer, I think, I think it's important that we, that, we, that we as an act of resistance that we declare the goodness of the Lord. That's what we're doing in this, in this, in this, in this service, but, 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 but that's not the only act of resistance that we have. Because some of, our, some of our more conservative brothers and sisters are going to point us to thoughts and prayers, assuring us that we can't legislate away evil, that we have to change hearts. And, and it's important. We should pray. But as Dr. King said, one of my favorite quotes from him, one of many, it's true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can stop him from lynching me. And I think that's, a pretty, I think that's pretty important. Some of our more progressive brothers and sisters will throw themselves wholeheartedly into activism marshalling money and political power for gun reform, much of which we see as common sense. And we should agitate. We should organize. We should advocate. We should call our senators, vote out anyone who, who facilitates the death of children. But I have bad news. There will always be more money in exploitation and domination than there is in justice. I desperately don't want it to be true. But it is absolutely absurd, and I have, to keep, I have to keep profanity out of my mind when I talk about this, that, that the mass killing of children results in hand-wringing rather than concerted, constant, and immediate action. The details coming out of this shoot, they're some of the most horrific things I've ever heard in my life. Not just the deaths, but the utter failure of a system that many think is meant to protect them. Talk about 19 officers in a hall outside of a classroom when children are actively being shot and they're standing there. In this kind of world, what recourse do we have? I think Jesus actually gives us this answer in John 13 in his central command to Christians. Brothers and sisters, we've been, we've been going through the book of John for a number of months. We've, we've been through what, what scholars call the book of signs. Now we enter into the book of glory. Christ has said his words to the crowds. Now he speaks in the first portion of this text to the 12, and in the second portion of this text, he speaks to the 11. In this text, we're going to see the agony of betrayal and the command to love, two things that actually characterize the Christian life. But I, but I also want us to spend time with something that I've found over the last few months to be the most significant obstacle to the Christian life in this country and in this country's history, an obstacle that if we do not name and resist it particularly, we will not enjoy the gospel and we will not enjoy the good news of the kingdom of God to the extent that the Lord desires us to. It creates the question that is the title of this sermon. 
Can we love under racial capitalism? And I know what your first question is, what is this racial capitalism? Well, I'm going to tell you in a minute. After we read the word, please stand for the reading of God's word, John 13, verses 21 to 38. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let me continue that. Let me continue that reading down to verse, down to verse 38. My, my children, I, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. The word of the Lord. (laughs) Two big points today. The agony of betrayal and the difficulty of love. And I want to start with the two betrayals, because it's like, this is, this, is the, this, is, this is the bread to this scriptural sandwich, and then we're going to look at the command in the middle. So if you're, if you're wondering where we are in the, in the Gospel of John, in the narrative of Jesus' life, he's just washed his disciples' feet. He's just exemplified a humility that seems unbecoming of the, of the eternal Son of God. But that's precisely the kind of God we serve, a God who pours himself out for those who suffer and for those who are weak. But he's met in verse 21 with a troubled spirit. He's troubled because someone is going to betray him. And when you read the four gospel accounts, it's clear that no one, except for perhaps John, traditionally the the disciple whom Jesus loved, nobody knows who it is, but we do. It's Judas. And the depth of this betrayal 
is a massive deal. Judas is a member of the 12. These are Jesus's ride or die brothers. Like this is, this is, you think about somebody who you've been friends with for like 20, let's say you've been friends with this person for 20 years. Let's say that you've, you've confided in this person. You've wept with this person. You've, supp- you've suffered with this person. And that's the person who hands you over to die. Imagine picking your closest confidants and knowing that one of them is, according to the chapter before this, John, John 12, we're told that Judas is a thief. If you know someone is a thief, do you hang out with them? Probably not. But Jesus not only invites Judas into, into his inner circle, he makes him treasurer. Treasurer, y'all. He puts a thief in charge of his own money. If, if anything, Jesus is, is not the person to learn organizational behavior from. But 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 here's the but here's but here's the way that here's the here's the way that Judas is framed in scripture. The scriptural framing of Judas reveals that he is an idolater. He serves a god different from the god served by the other disciples. And that god has a name. In Aramaic it's Mamona, Mammon, money. Judas's sin is greed. It's like, it's, it's in every characterization of Judas Iscariot that we see throughout the scriptures. That the love of money was enough to keep him from worshiping the Lord who he walked around with. I really want you to, like, like I really want us to think about that. Because I think, I, I think we think that if we saw and walked around with Jesus, then we'd, we'd constantly be falling at his feet, doing everything that he said. And we're told in the scriptures that the thing that keeps Judas from doing that is money. It's no wonder that Jesus talks about money so much. It's no wonder that he utters these woes to the rich and cares so much for the poor. What does this say to us? One thing, it tells us how much Jesus cares about money. That is demonstrably little. By contrast, we live in what I referred to earlier and will, con- and will consistently refer to as a racial capitalist society. What do I mean by that? So it's going to be important, actually, for us to have a base of economic history for us to understand the gospel. You don't believe me yet. You'll see. For us to apply the gospel... We have to understand the world in which we live. We have to understand our culture, a word we love. And in order to understand our culture, we have to understand our political economy, words that we don't often use as often. So here's what, so here's what capitalism is. It's the interaction of three things. A market, private ownership of the means of production, and wage labor. In other words, goods and services are exchanged, people instead of governments, own those things, and people are paid for their labor. But what's the purpose of this system? The purpose is profit, preferably by any means necessary. And when Slim read this sermon, because we always read one another's sermons, he's like, would capitalist defenders agree with that framing? I think it's always important to fairly critique people in their own words. So the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, they're fans of fans of capitalism, I would say, put out a paper back in 2015 titled, What is Capitalism? Here's a a significant quote. The essential feature of capitalism is the motive to make a profit. As Adam Smith, the 18th century philosopher and father of modern economics said, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. Let me say that another way. Our economy, our society is built on self-interest and the assumption that someone else's self-interest is going to at some point match up with mine. 
That's what we constantly live in hope of. And our particular system in this country also came out of and was fed by the deep, deep evil of racialized chattel slavery and enabled by the slaughter of Native Americans and the theft of their land. So we have, we have an economy that is soaked in blood. And the reason for all of this? Because you got to dominate and exploit folks in order to accumulate. And domination and exploitation are just Asian words for pride and greed. To say that we live in a racial capitalist society is to say that the only capitalism that we know is one that's racialized. That's our political economy. It's going to be important later. Fast forward to today. Did you know that 20 to 25% of the world's economy is not, is not rooted in the creation of goods or services? It's in the finance industry, which is basically just making money on top of money. I was a finance major in undergrad. I was on the road to becoming an investment banker. Just making racks on racks. <laughs> and when I say racks on racks, like I don't just mean like making a lot of money. What I mean is making money on top of money as in making money by just moving money around to make more money. Like, that's what that industry is. You know what wealth management is? It's just help, it's, it's helping, make, it's helping rich people multiply their money by just moving it around. It is not hyperbole to say that our world runs on profit. The NRA is having a convention this weekend in Houston. It's one of the reasons why we don't see the common sense gun reform that we want to see. It's because there's so much money in the system. We can be bombarded by the deaths of children, but there's so much money in the system. It's why, it's why states are looking to criminalize homelessness. It's why we make, it's why we make many of this, it's why we make many of the decisions that we make daily. It's why we change jobs. It's why we grind ourselves into the dust and why we grind, and why we grind our families into the dust. It's why we ignore the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's why Walmart thought that Juneteenth ice cream was a good idea. Profit. Money. In our nation's case, racial capitalism. In our political economy, it's what tells us what has value. It's that nationally we care more about our banks, our industries, and our military than our schools. And that's the big picture. But I want, but I want, us, to, I want us to think about our lives, your, your life. Because remember, we're talking about Judas' betrayal. Judas' betrayal of the Son of God. And he does it for 30 pieces of silver. He does it for money. And money is one of the two things that precipitate betrayal of the Son of God, his desires, and his kingdom. Money is one of them. And brothers and sisters, that betrayal does not end well for Judas. Matthew 27, 1 to 5 is a heartbreaking passage. It says, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse, and he returned the 30 silver coins to the, to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Judas's life, 
a life that was lived in the pursuit of profit, it did not end in enjoyment. It didn't end in him partying on a yacht or swimming in a vat of gold coins or lounging in a mansion. It ended in betrayal and it ended in despair. We're told in 2 Corinthians 7.10, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Judas's case is from all of our data, the second. Remorse, yes. But repentance, we're not told. And I want to be clear about this. We're, we, 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 we have to be here for one another, especially in the midst of, de- of depression and despair. And as we, as we said earlier, we, we want you to avail yourself of all of the resources at our disposal for mental illness, ther- therapy, medication, all of it, please. But the story that we're given of Judas from Scripture is of a thief who betrayed our Lord for profit, who realized that he broke an amazing relationship and betrayed the only truly innocent person who ever lived, and he succumbed to despair. It is a story of utter darkness. And we must not forget that it is utter darkness that is driven by Satan, who entered into Judas, and by profit, one of Satan's tools for fomenting betrayal. Profit. The first of the two reasons for betrayal in this passage, and the reason for the first great betrayal. But what about the second? For the second betrayal, I want to look at uh, Peter. Peter's the eager beaver of the Gospels. Always eager to show his support for Jesus. This is, this is Peter who told Jesus, no, you can't die it doesn't make any sense for the Messiah to die. This is, this is the Peter who, as Slim talked about last week, initially refused Jesus washing his feet because that doesn't make any sense. Why would the Lord wash his feet? I imagine there are some Peters among us as well, people who are eager for the things of God, perhaps sometimes over-eager, but well-meaning. But in this text, Jesus tells his disciples that, that, he's, that, that, that he has to go somewhere that they cannot follow as he's talking about his death and his ascension. And so Peter responds in verses 36 to 37, 38. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Brothers and sisters, Peter is the other great betrayer. Well, when we read the account of his denial later in this book and in, and, and in, the, and in the other Gospels, the reason is clear. Fear. Association with a Jesus who's about to be convicted, it puts Peter at risk, and so he ditches him. Thankfully, after Jesus' return, Peter repents truly and is restored to full fellowship. But this is the second reason for our own betrayals of the Lord, our betrayals of the kingdom, and our betrayals of the commands of Christ. Fear. And this goes back to the racial capitalism conversation. It goes back to our political economy because many of our choices are driven by fear. Fear of not being able to provide for our families. Fear of not being able to protect our families under the constant threat of domestic terrorism. I've had to tell myself this over the course of the past few weeks and years, that this is, the, this is how the system in which we live, this is how it wants us to live and to operate. In fear. It's why replacement theory is coming out 
It's why it's on Fox News and all these other outlets. This, this fear that white, that white people are being replaced by immigrants and black people and other undesirables. It's a theory that traffics in fear, fear of losing your cultural influence that you're supposed to have. And it's a theory that ends in death and ends in violence. When we hear about school, church, and grocery store shootings, our first reaction is fear. What are, the, what are the levers of escalating violence that I can pull so that I can protect myself and the ones that I love? I know, I feel it. De Desiree and I have talked about this together. We've yelled about it. We've, we've been frustrated. We've wept about it. And, 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 and in an economy where people are constantly afraid to speak up for love and for justice because of the effect that it'll have on your jobs or on our livelihoods, on making donors or constituents angry, we're reminded that the two things that foment betrayal of the Lord, his commands, and his kingdom are profit and fear. But you will say, there are some things that I should be afraid of. Sometimes anxiety produces, produces action. There's a good kind of fear, a good kind of anxiety, a productive kind of anxiety. Jesus disagrees. This is, it, is, it, is, it is hilarious to me that, that Jesus, right after he says, you cannot serve both God and money, the immediate thing that he goes into, because he knows where people are gonna, he knows what people are gonna think when he says that, immediately he talks about worry in Matthew 6. He says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than them? And later in verse 32, for the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but... Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So I want you to consider your life. I want you to consider how you make your work decisions, how you make your life decisions, how you make your daily decisions, how you make your relationship decisions. Have they been corrupted by fear? Have they been corrupted by the, by the desire for profit? The idols that we serve determine the lives that we live. And here, the idols of profit and the idols, well, violence and other idols that lead us into fear, those are the biggest and the loudest. And I can hear, I can hear the gears turning in some of your heads right now. Why is he spending all this time talking about like politics and economics? When they asked Rene Padilla, Marvelous theologian, Latin American evangelical theologian. They asked him, uh, like, whether the church should be involved in justice and economics. This was the, this was the answer that he gave. And this is the, question, this is the answer I'm going to give like, any time anybody ever like, says that. He says this, the fact is that whether we like it or not, we're already involved. Politics and economics are unavoidable. They're a part of the reality that surrounds us while we are in the world. The real question, therefore, is since we are, in fact, involved, how can we make sure that our involvement is faithful to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Even though we may, tr even though we may try to avoid taking any notice of politics and economics, they will always take notice of us. So what's the answer? I did promise you an answer. 
And I kind of just, I kind of just gave it in quoting, in quoting Matthew 6. That the answer is that we seek above all else the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that answer is neither prayer nor activism. It's actually both. But neither is the one answer. The answer, actually, Jesus gives it in verses 31 to 35. When, Ju- when, when he was gone, when Judas was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. What is extremely important about these verses is who he's talking to. The first four words of verse 31 are very, very important. When he was gone, after Judas had left, these are Jesus' words to the eleven. These are his words to all of these 11, all these 11 particular men, but, the, but, 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 this, is, but, but this is to the church. This, these, these 11 are 11 who will die for the kingdom. John is going to die of old age. The other 10 are going to be martyred, according, according to tradition. So this is Jesus' word to the church, not to the masses. And his word begins with a new commandment. So already we should be in the mindset of like that, 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 that the commitment of the body of Christ, that when we claim allegiance to the king of glory, when we claim allegiance to the son of God, there's a new commandment that we're under. And that commandment is this, that we love one another, and not just love one another, but love one another as Christ has loved us. And so if it's true, as I wanted to kind of briefly lay out, that that, that political economy is our issue. Racial capitalism is our issue. This, this corrupt system that we prop up, that, 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 that propagates fear and the, and, the, and the idolatry of profit. If that's the issue, then we need, an, we need a far-reaching answer. And brothers and sisters, it's going to sound weird for me to say this, but I have to say it because it's what Jesus says. The answer to racial capitalism is love. And for that to make sense, you can't think about love as an emotion, and you also can't think about love as just an action. You have to think about love as a political economy. Because if you're a Christian, if you're worthy of the name, if you're truly united to Christ, if you're truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit, when you say those things, what you're saying is that you're saying that you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. It means that you're saying that you're committed to an alternative political economy, a different way of valuing people, a different way of valuing nature, a different way of valuing the world. That's what we're, that's what we're saying when we're preaching the gospel. In a world of what historian Akhil Mbemba called necropolitics, A world where some people are deemed collateral damage. Some people are all right to let die so that others can live. In that kind of world, we are called to a politics of life where we support the lives of our neighbors. By any means necessary, all of our neighbors, even those whom we think are despicable, even our enemies. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. It's one of the things I love about Westminster. 
is that, is that in the catechism, we're, 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 we're told that we, that we don't just have, these, 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 aren't just, these aren't just things that we avoid doing. There are things that the Lord wants us to do. And, that, and, 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 and in order for us not to kill one another, like that's not, that's not where our ethical actions stop. We have to actively support the lives of one another. That's what love is. We value people differently. We ought to value the resources of our world not as idols to be worshipped or chattel to be exploited, but as gifts from the Lord to be used to bring life, not to kill. But this political economy of love won't take place in the world until Jesus brings it. If you're wondering why the Son of God took on flesh, why he lived the life he did, why he was murdered, it was because he saw a world of murder, of domination, of exploitation, of abuse, and he said, I'm not going to let that happen. My kingdom is coming now. And if you're wondering what the gospel is, it's not just believing particular things about Jesus, though it is that. It's not just doing the particular things that Christ has commanded us to do. It is that. But it's also a statement of allegiance to the king. And what he's commanded us to do is to live like he rules now. That's why these are his words to the 11. Because these are his words to those who he knows in a few short months are going to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Like, these are the folks who are going to actually be able to do the things that he commanded them to do. Everybody's got access to the Ten Commandments and their summary. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourselves. Yes, this is how we love the world. But how are we supposed to love each other? The scriptures actually tell us that our love for one another in the household of faith is actually even deeper. Galatians 6.10. Paul says, so then, as we have opportunity, let's do what is good toward all people. And especially toward those who are of the household of the faith. And this, and this is going to sound weird. It's gonna, it, it, it sounds weird to us. Um, and, and, and one of my new favorite theologians reflects on why it sounds weird. Um, Antonio Gonzalez, who says this. This priority may sound foreign to the perspective that Christians have adopted for centuries. He calls it the Constantinian perspective. So basically, a church, a church that's, 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 that's gotten used to being aligned with empire, just like see, see, seeing this kind of priority is weird. Because... We would think, is it not more necessary to help especially those who are most in need and not those of the house of faith? To be sure, once Christian communities have ceased to be a truly alternative economic and social reality, and once Christians have taken up positions of power in society, such Pauline criteria lose all their original meaning. What's he saying? Gonzalez is getting at something that I think we've lost. The church is not a social club of people who agree on stuff. It's not a place where we just hang out and sing songs and organize for political protest. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not just a place where we encourage one another to just kind of work your way up the ladder to a position of worldly influence that you can take the world by storm for Christ. That is a capitulation to the kingdoms of the world. That's an admission that the only way for us to win is if we win the way the world tells us we have to. The church is an outpost of the cosmic and eternal kingdom of God. It's a beacon to the world of an alternative political economy. That is, the way that we love, the way that we structure ourselves, the way that we structure our lives, is supposed to be something that the world can't see anywhere else. Christ has given us an example. Love one another as Christ has loved us. 
So then we have to answer the question, how, how did Christ love us? Well, first of all, the eternal Son of God took on flesh, a serious demotion. He also learned obedience through suffering. And he suffered to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what he did for you. He died for you. But he also didn't give up that flesh, ever. So the ascended Christ, at the right hand of the Father right now, still bears the scars of our clay-made flesh. And there are a few things that characterize Jesus' love for us. And these are the last things I want to say. I want to I I I close with these, with these things. What does Christ's love for us look like? It means, first, that there was nothing that he was not willing to lose in the, in the pursuit of the beloved. Second, there was, there was the assumption that suffering is part of the deal. And third, there's a relentless pursuit, a relentless perseverance in this love. There was nothing Jesus wasn't willing to lose. When Jesus saw the needs of his disciples, he filled them abundantly. And when you see your brother or sister in need, you fill that need. Period. Like, I, like that's not a, like, 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 it's not a discussion. Like, like maybe, maybe if it's really a need. We feel, no, if, you, if it's a brother or sister in Christ, when they have a need, you fill it. This is, I, 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 I've been encouraged by seeing that, like, actually happen in this community. But, like, that's why, that's also why you give to the church. It's not because God needs it. It's, be, it's because your brothers and sisters do. When I talk to the elders and the, and the deacons, about, about the money of the church, which everybody gets super uncomfortable about, our primary job is redistribution. That's what this new political economy is about. It's about redistribution according to people's needs. With the world, you have to be judicious. You've got you've to constantly do the discernment of choosing where to focus. With us, with brothers and sisters, when needs pop up, we fill them. Period. And there's a fear that's going to pop up when we, when we start to really kind of commit to that. Uh, there's, a, there's a fear of kind of some of us not having enough or whatever. And, 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 I, and, and the way that we combat that fear is by remembering that we have all promised to do that for one another. See, because when, when, when everyone is looking out to their own self-interests, everyone suffers because of their own lack. This goes back to another, uh, uh, another Adam Smith quote about, about capitalism. When he, when he, he, he assumes that, hey, like somehow when we all focus on our own self-interest, it benefits society. He says, as if guided by an invisible hand. The invisible hand that guides self-interest doesn't guide us to flourishing. It guides us to destruction. That's what the Bible says. But... When every one of us is looking to the interests of others, then everybody gets fed. This is why Paul commands us on a number of occasions not to look to our own interests, but to the interests of others. That's what Christ-like love looks like. What does is, what is Christian marriage look like? Is it, is it just some kind of godly example of authority and submission? Is it, is it a husband and a wife who are just like constantly working in their own self-interest and hoping that at some point those, those interests coincide? No. 
It looks like a husband and wife seeking to outdo one another in Christ-likeness. It looks like a husband whose first relational priority is the physical, emotional, spiritual, sexual, whole self-health of his wife. It looks like a wife whose first relational priority is the physical, emotional, spiritual, sexual, whole self-health of her husband. That's what that, that's what that looks like. What does Christian singleness look like? Well, Paul says that that's actually an ideal state since you don't have to deal with the distractions of marriage. So single Christians in this new political economy can use their talents and their treasure and their time for the edification of the body first and foremost because they know that you have a true family in the family of God. You know that your relational needs will be met. You know that you can operate out of fullness instead of out of loneliness and scarcity. What does it look like for every Christian in this new political economy? It means that, that, it means that we refuse to let sin go unrecognized in our midst because we know that if our brother or sister is corrupted, then that corruption can spread to all of us. And so out of love, we hold one another accountable because we know that the health of the body is at stake. Among us, there ought to be nothing that we're not willing to lose for each other. Our faith demands a new way of life, a new political economy, and we have the resources to do it. This is what the Holy Spirit, Jesus is going to talk about the Holy Spirit for these next few chapters. Because he's like, I'm talking about a new society, and I need to be here to do that. And he is, by his spirit. This is what it means for the body of Christ to be salty, the salt of the earth. Because at the moment that we fail to be an alternative is the moment that we lose our saltiness. And if we're just like everyone else, what are we inviting people to? Second, suffering. It's integral and expected in the Christian life. And so we got to walk alongside one another in it. Praying and alleviating that suffering when we have the ability. Because when we're dealing with our brothers and sisters in Christ, the answer is always yes and amen. And last, a relentless perseverance. Jesus relentlessly pursued us in his life all the way to a shameful death at the hands of a state that saw him as a rebel and as a threat. And throughout that pursuit, he, he, he expressed a solidarity with the poor and the oppressed that he did not stop expressing when he, raised, when, 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 when he was raised and ascended. Even now, it's, he shows that solidarity in the fact that he still has flesh. And so when we see our brothers and sisters, we have to understand those commitments not just as like fleeting, hey, it's great that we're sitting with each other. No, 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 no. You are my brother. You are my sister. We are family. There shall be no injustice in our midst. There shall be no domination in our midst. There shall be no abuse in our midst. There shall be no exploitation in our midst. And when we find it, we have to root it out because we love each other. That's what love is. It was, it, it's been infuriating to see this, to see this abuse, new, the, uh, the news of abuse in the church because what this, what, 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 there's some things that Paul said ought not be named among us. And he said it because if some, if someone in, there are acts, and he, he says this, if someone claims to be a brother, or sister, and does these things, you don't eat with those people. 
There are things that you do that you, that by, by which you reveal you are not a citizen of the kingdom of God. This isn't just me. This isn't me saying it. This is what the Bible says. And so I think, it, I, think it's, I think it's important for us to understand what it means when we're, when we're talking about the fact that Christ, has, that, 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 that Christ has gathered a new people. See, we're going to look out into the world, and we're going to see destruction, we're going to see pain, we're going to see death, and we're going to be tempted to see this alternative community as a retreat. Brothers and sisters, we have access to a joy in the midst of sadness that no one else has. We have access to a light in the midst of deep, deep darkness that no one else has. Despair is not on the table, not with a Jesus who got up, not with a love like Christ's. This is how the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's the Lord's call to us, brothers and sisters. It is to form a community and to live as a people where Jesus rules now. And, and as the author of Hebrews tells us, we, we do not yet see everything subject to Christ, but we ought to see ourselves in that way. Mosaic ought to see mosaic in that way. And we ought to show the world by our love what they're invited into. If they, re, if they repent, turn from their sin and believe the good news of the kingdom of God. The question was, can we love under racial capitalism? The answer is that we must. Because that is what the kingdom of God demands of us. Let's pray.